Today on episode four, we're going to discuss the differences between dismantling and demolishing systemic isms. Well, I can't wait to have this discussion with you, Shauna. So if you all want to join us after the break, you will learn what this all means. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, okay, so I'm scrolling through the New York Times this morning, as I do with my cereal every day, and I come across this article. Um, so it's set in Australia. The, there's a company in Australia called Rio Tinto, and it's a mining company, and they are the number two mining company in the world, I believe. Anyway, it mm-hmm. turns out that they um, decided to blow up literally these uh, underwater uh, caves that are sacred to Aboriginal peoples in Australia. So they have found some amazing um, artifacts in these caves, like a 24,000 year old blade, a 14,000 year old um, braid of hair that they believe was worn as a belt. I mean, this is like a really important Mm. set of caves and this mining company decided in all of their wisdom to blow them up so they could access the iron. Anyway, this happened earlier in the summer, I guess. And today the CEO of this mining company, and I believe two of the board members resigned their position because there's been um, an outcry and um, Mm. a huge pushback about the fact that they did this, right? Because you can't get Mm -hmm. these caves back. They're gone. Right. Right. Um, And what was most striking to me, two things. One was, they had to get government permission to do this, right? They didn't just roll in there and blow up the caves. So someone in the government, they had to apply for a permit. They had to get permission to do that. So, you know, I feel like this is a moment to drop my first F-bomb. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) How did that even happen, right? Like, how is that even something that you would give permission for? And two, the prime minister or president of Australia is on record saying that Australia doesn't have a systemic racism problem. So, um, Yes, you do. Mm, and Absolutely. And it's law and policy, as I understand it, that allowed this to happen. Because when there's a dispute over whether or not a mining company or a corporation can do something like this, the law favors the corporation. It doesn't favor the people um, protesting the behavior, right? So mm-hmm. the Aboriginal, Aboriginal groups or other advocates and allies, um, they don't have um, the law on their side, it sounds like. So... You've got a baked in um, legal framework that privileges these large companies that are um, creating destruction and um, ruining these sacred spaces. And so I feel like that really, really falls into the category of systemic racism. So I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, it, it reminds me, so I'm in this really weird place in life right now where I've definitely been watching American politics. I've been watching international politics and their response to American politics. And I've also been kind of an escapist because I don't know about you all that uh, happen to be 
the West Wing fans, but not only did I already have the box set in my house, thank you very much. I received that for a Christmas gift many, many years ago, but now it's actually on Netflix, okay? So I've been catching up on Netflix. Um, and I went back and I started the first season and you're reminding me of an episode in particular in the first season where President uh, Jed Bartlett is trying to salvage Big Sky Reservation. And I don't remember all the details on it, but what I do remember is that, of course, Jed Bartlett was a big fan of all 53 um, national parks in the country. And so he knows, like, line and verse everything about all of these national parks. And so one of his aides comes back to tell President Bartlett, look, if you're trying to salvage Big Sky as a reservation, why don't you just turn it into a national park and then nobody can touch it? And President Bartlett says to him, well, wait a minute, it might be like two big rocks out there, but it's nothing that tourists would come to see. His aide said, that doesn't really matter. The president can declare a national park wherever he so chooses. And that's how he saves Big Sky Reservation and some of the oil and the natural resources that were there um, in this uh in this um, <laughs> fictional story. But what I think is applicable to this real life story is that once again, we have to tap into these policies either to uh, save or prevent something from happening to either people or places that are indigenous. And when you have to tap into a policy or a procedure in order to save something, then to me, I'm like, okay, obviously you do have systemic racism because you have to use the system to save something or uh, at least to create a way to get around having to enact something. So to say that you don't have systemic racism while you're enacting a policy to, pre to prevent racism, eh, you're kind of talking out of both sides of your face there a little bit. So, but that's me. I, I, I don't, understand how we can't we say we don't have a system but yet we're functioning within it at the very same time mm -hmm. yeah and i think that that's such a great example and p.s i totally love the west wing i haven't seen Yay! that show in forever Yay! it was one of my favorite shows growing <laughs> up um yeah like we i think we've heard a lot in recent times um systemic racism systemic sexism um used and I wonder, it's often without definition. So I think how you framed it just mm -hmm. then, Shauna, is really helpful for our listeners to understand that we're talking about um, beliefs that are baked into a system, right? So on their face, they mm -hmm. appear neutral, but they're actually not um, because they favor one group over another based on how, that they, how they've been created or, or rather maybe who created them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. And, you know, that's where you're reminding me of a conversation I was just having this morning around um, what is considered what or who is considered normal and who is considered outside of that norm. And we even had a little bit of that conversation last week, I think, um, Lisa, when we were talking specifically around um, artificial intelligence, even. So we were talking about something as simple as hand washing, which is completely applicable in the middle of a pandemic, obviously. Um, but we were talking about that too, where, for example, I didn't realize this until one of my researchers on campus brought this up, that I always wondered why when you went into a bathroom to wash your hands and they have those automatic sinks that the, the water is supposed to come out as soon as it recognizes uh, that mm -hmm. your hand is underneath. And, you know, it always took two or three tries for mine to, to actually come out. Now, when I put my hands, the brown side of my hands under the water, for some reason, it would take a little bit of time. But the second I turned my palms up, 
then magically the water came on and this scholar shared with me that's exactly what we're talking about how systemic racism is baked into even our artificial intelligence where the water did not even recognize that your hands were hands until you showed the quote unquote white portions of your hands not the melanated portions of your hands and People like me who don't focus on artificial intelligence are wondering, oh, it must just be me or maybe my hands aren't in the right position or something's wrong. No, the actual artificial intelligence was built to exclude individuals. So if someone is trying to use an iPhone and the face cannot be recognized because it has too much melanin, that's because the face doesn't have too much melanin the technology was based upon a face that didn't have melanin. And so therefore the system is deficient because it's not including everyone. And so, you know, what do we do when we really do wake up to the fact that all these systems are around us and some of us didn't even realize it? Um, I'm, I would even imagine some of the artificial intelligence folks that have studied this for years don't even realize how race and racism is built into their scientific work. Mm -hmm. Once you recognize it, what do you do to reverse that or, or change that in any way? Yeah, um, this is a little off topic, but you just made me think about it. Yesterday, I was listening to an NPR piece, I think, um, that the trials, the clinical phase three trials for the COVID vaccine, um, obviously, mm -hmm. you have to have thousands and thousands of people in these trials so that you can um, better understand those rare reactions that might happen to the vaccine. And um, I believe for one of the trials that's happening, it might be Pfizer's trial, there's only 19% folks of color that are in the pool of people being uh, tested. And so obviously you need to have a diverse pool of people to test these drugs on. So that's age, gender, racial identity, um, size even to know how a particular vaccine might land. We also know that communities of color have been more heavily hit with COVID in terms of severity and frequency. And yet your trial only has 19% folks of color that's mm -hmm. connected to a larger distrust of the scientific community um, from folks mm -hmm. of color because of a history of uh, abusive medical practice, right? So it's, it's Absolutely. complicated, but Pfizer, it's on you to fix mm -hmm. that, right? Much like it's on that company that built the, um, the hand-washing sensor to actually teach that machine to respond to hands of all different colors, right? Mm -hmm. Versus their pool was probably just white hands, right? And they probably didn't even think about it because it was probably white people that built it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and you're, you're bringing up an article that one of my friends actually shared with me earlier today about some of those trials for the vaccine now and how, yes, you're exactly right. So many people are suspect of the medical community, mostly because there has been targeted racism and violence against folks, um, I, I would say beyond Tuskegee, but most people know the Tuskegee experiment as the mm -hmm. major one um, where black men were used to test syphilis um, in particular, and they were um, not treated, but yet told they were being treated. So I'll keep it very simple there. And so that's how the majority of American research and um, institutional review boards were kind of created in response to the Tuskegee experiment to protect people, um, all people, as they are um, used in trials and so forth. And so knowing that there would be a challenge to people responding to some of those uh, vaccine trials, 
a number of presidents of medical schools came together to practically beg, in my opinion, uh, to beg communities of color to participate in some of these trials. So, you know, the president of, of Howard University, the president of Morehouse School of Medicine, the president of Meharry Medical College, you know, all of these schools, Charles R. Drew, um, all of the, the historically black colleges and universities that have medical schools, they have brought their voices together to get people to take part because they do recognize the systemic racism and also the apprehension. And so they are leadership voices trying to bring people in. So that kind of circles us back around to those folks or the disenfranchised folks already know that there's systemic racism in place mm-hmm. and they're trying to break down some of the barriers by saying, no, it, we need you and it's okay. Can you please take part? Mm-hmm. Because it's almost a chicken or the egg type of thing. People avoid the trials because they're afraid of what can happen to them. But yet if we don't participate in the trials, then things can happen to us. So, you know, given that, how do we dismantle this mindset around um, the challenges of systemic racism? How do we dismantle it? Because it was built over centuries centuries we're not going to fix it and and i think we kind of talked about this before you know some people think i can read one book and you know do one thing and then all of a sudden 400 years of racism in the united states is going to magically go away it doesn't work that way and and i'm not even sure it should work that way but it definitely doesn't work that way if it did we could have snapped our fingers and made things work a a bit more quickly but it doesn't work that way Mm -hmm. yeah i mean when i uh i teach a class uh that draws a lot on feminist theory and some of the conclusions that students make is that we just need to burn it all down, (laughs) right? Like, (laughs) let's just put Uh a batch to it and just poof, Mm -hmm. right? And just rebuild it from scratch because the system is so broken and it's so entrenched in all these little ways. Like, and I think your hand washing example is such an important one, right? Because when we think about systemic racism, Mm. we think sometimes in much bigger ways around maybe employment discrimination or educational discrimination or redlining, um, which is the practice of um, blocking um, communities, Mm -hmm. uh, communities of color out of certain geographic areas and preventing preventing them from buying homes by denying Mm -hmm. loans and such, right? Like kind of bigger, more obvious things, but it's down to the micro. It's down to the voice recognition software, right? The hand washing, the um, uh, like even Mm -hmm. face recognition, right? We've had African-American men be misidentified by face recognition software and arrested even Mm -hmm. when they weren't the correct person because of this, because there's not enough pictures of black people, Latina Mm -hmm. people in the system, right? That's right. and so I think that, you know, I don't know that burning it all down is necessarily the best approach. Um, and you, you had a good way to kind of talk about that, Shauna. Well, bur- burning it down, I, I feel them. I mean, <laughs> my, my emotions say burn it all down. So I, I'm not going completely against that. But I do think that, you know, again, it is it's a learning process in the dismantling and rebuilding something. Right. And so, you know, given that I do think it's a it feels like an easier way out of let's get rid of it and start completely over. Um, But, you know, we can't get rid of people necessarily with certain mindsets. We can't get rid of thought patterns. We can't get rid of this is the only way we've ever known certain things, for example. And so, you know, the, the dismantling piece, I think there's something to be said about what does it mean to carefully take something apart because as you're taking it apart you're really mm, examining 
what went wrong so that we don't do it again. And so it's not just the tearing it down part, it's the tearing it down and the self-examination. Because I think what happens is, you know, if you demolish an entire system or an entire community or, you know, I think that's an easier way out that keeps you from really examining what actually happened to get us to this place. So rather, what can we do to slowly dismantle, do some really deep self-assessment as a country, as individuals, as communities, and then rebuild it exactly the opposite of what it was prior to in order to get to a better place? That is more careful. And, and I think the challenge is if we're impatient, we could rebuild too quickly, which mm. then would create different problems. So, you know, yeah. going back to what we talked about before with uh, the book cast and Isabel Wilkerson, and we're still trying to get through the book. The book is heavy. Um, but I do think that, you know, she gives this example, several different examples of ways in which people can be structured on this hierarchy. And so let's say, for example, we drive a Mack truck through the United States of America to say, we're going to tear all this stuff up. And then we turn around and we rebuild another society that then casts people in a completely different way. We haven't learned. We haven't learned a thing. So if mm. we casted people based on race previously, but then we tear it all up, we don't do the self-examination, and then we cast people by physical ability or by money or by pick a struggle, then, you know, all of a sudden we're right back where we began. It's just a very different flavor, but we're doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So that leads me to think about endurance sports, right? So kind of your um, precise um, pulling apart of a system makes me think of a bike, right? When, um, you know, mm -hmm. you, you carefully and lovingly take apart <laughs> your bike, if, there's, if you know how to do that, right? And taking all of the components off and cleaning each one and then putting it back together and you essentially have a new bike, right? Especially if your bike is filthy and hasn't been cared for in years. So Stop talking about me, Lisa. I'm looking <laughs> over at my bike right now and you must be talking about my trek. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sixth sense there, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, you know, that is definitely a way to think about this, that you don't just... Um, um, if you just put a spray on your bike, like if you've gone out and had a very mm -hmm. muddy ride and you just kind of give it a cursory spray to try and clean it, you're going to miss all those nooks and crannies, right? And that's going to create difficulty in riding it in the future, you know, because you, you won't have cleaned it properly. And yeah. so with endurance sports, we're at a time that I think is pretty interesting because COVID has pretty much shut everything down. Mm -hmm. So in addition yeah. to all the calls for racial justice and this reckoning that has accelerated during this time in terms of folks in endurance sports looking at why is why is this still so white right um right right we have an we are presented with an, a unique opportunity to rebuild i think in a way that you describe right you know dismantling and rebuilding carefully so we don't repeat this the same mistakes of the past mm -hmm. um yeah and i don't know what your thoughts are on that i'm not i don't have a great precise answer for what that might look like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I don't have a real precise one for it either, but I'm just imagining how we can start looking at everything from, I know we say top down, but bottom up too. I think it all applies, but you know, I think what's so intriguing and this happens across lots of different organizations. So I'm, I'm picking on triathlon, but I'm also picking on other organizations where a, and I see it all the time. We, we see it in higher education in our field mm -hmm. as well, where we have a, working group 
of, or a, um, how can we say, a task force. One of my good friends calls it a tax force because it's taxing of our time, energy, et cetera. Um, Daryl Lovett uses that term. Um, but what happens is that there's this task force that's put together of people that all look similar and think very similarly, and they're all sitting around talking about what they should do to diversify themselves. Well, if they knew what to do, then they would have done it. <laughs> if they had this awareness, they would have done it. And so it's still this, you know, this duplicative process of trying to figure it out. And so I think what's challenging is, you know, can we start from the top to say, okay, what does leadership look like? Even if the leadership is white, let's say a CEO is white or an owner is white, et cetera, is that white person aware enough and conscious enough to surround themselves with people who don't look or think like them, values them, compensates mm. them for their experience, especially their professional skill sets around diversity, inclusion, equity work, and make sure that they are part of the constant decision making versus an advisory board. Like right now, I'm really sick of advisory anything mm -hmm. right now because they do a lot of hard work and they shoulder a lot of heavy lifting only to advise and not to necessarily impact because there is some type of ceiling, whether glass or otherwise, where they're throwing lots of advice up, but very few things happen. Um, and so, you know, are our leaders surrounding themselves with very strong people who can give direction and they have the, the weight of seniority or power to make some decisions. And do, of course, do they have the money to go along with it, the resources, the people, et cetera, but are they doing that? And if you're surround, if you're a leader and you're surrounding yourself with like people to make your organization more diverse, then you've already gone off on the wrong path, in my opinion. Mm. Mm. So yeah, if you have the opportunity to rebuild your business, say post COVID um, mm -hmm. and you're looking to either going a new direction or, um, build back, um, yeah. then asking yourself as that owner, as that leader, questions around who can I rebuild back with, right? And mm -hmm. how do I make sure that when I'm rebuilding this race, this program, this event, that I'm doing so with a diversity of opinions um, yes. and not just pulling in the same people that you had previously? Yes, absolutely. And, and I think there's another piece to that too that we may be leaving out um, is around, are we bringing in different people, but also are we identifying, readily identifying where our blind spots are because that's probably where the business or the organization is most deficient. So, so when I go in to work with an organization and I ask them, you know, some of the things that we've talked about before, what makes your particular, particular race more uh, disability friendly, for example, and the owner or the race director says, oh, I never really thought about that immediately. I know that's a blind spot. That doesn't mean they don't want to work on it. It's mm -hmm. just that they literally, in all the work they've done, they might have been a race director for 10, 20, 30 years, and they've never thought about that. That tells me that they have a large growing edge, which immediately identifies what we need to work on. Mm -hmm. Because if you say, I've never thought about it, it's literally never crossed your mind. It's not that you're resistant to it. It's literally mm -hmm. that it's a blind spot, just like you're driving a car and you don't see it. And so that's, that's where I think a lot of potential can happen. I enjoy discovering blind spots because it's with a blind spot, it's not belligerence to the topic. It's not like I have purposely avoided talking about ability. No, that's not the case. It just wasn't on their radar. And so people like you, me, a lot of people that we know that do this work professionally, 
we're the ones that highlight, you know, all of those various identities. Um, I think, Lisa, I stopped counting at maybe 50 plus different social identities to think about on a regular basis. So are we thinking about people from different religious backgrounds when we're racing that need, um, they may need, I don't know anything, whether it comes to transition and they need a place to change that might be different from another gender or, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's say that they might have very different uh, fueling needs, for example. Um, so lots of things to think about. Am I thinking about all of those 50 plus different identities um, and how am I thinking about them to make sure that they're welcome in triathlon? So really, if you're a smart race director or race owner and you're talking about, hey, I want to make sure that not only triathlon is accessible, but let's say you're going from a selfish point of view. I just want to make sure the the sport continues to grow so that I can make a living. You would still want to embrace inclusion because it affects all of that bottom line, I would think. Mm -hmm. I think so too. And I think the piece around not identifying certain deficiencies is really valuable for us to think about because we each have our own experiences in the world. Right. And so, um, our set of glasses enable us to see certain things. And based on those identities, we see more or less of the picture, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's, if, you know, myself as a white woman, if I only surround myself with white women, Mm -hmm. as, as best as we try, there are going to be experiences and things that we miss because it isn't our lived experience. Yeah. And so we're going to then unintentionally bake into whatever system it is that we're building a white woman's perspective. Right. And I know Sarah and I have tried really hard with the Outspoken um, Women in Triathlon Summit not to do that. Right. Because she and I are both white women. And so we've been very intentional and we're not there yet. And we haven't we've been moderately successful, but we still have some j- a journey to travel regarding mm-hmm. that. Right. But it's a constant thought process, like it's mm-hmm. constantly in the front of our minds. And I think with your example around disability, you know, is it constantly in the front of a person's mind when it's been raised with them that your race might actually be exclusive to able-bodied people, right? And so folks mm-hmm. with disabilities can't access it. So then are you translating that new awareness into a ever-present thought about, well, if I implement this policy or this behavior, you know, how likely mm-hmm. is it that... Um, a person mm-hmm. with a disability can participate, like always thinking about that. And I think yeah. we yeah. can get lazy, which I think comes back to a point you've made several times around lazy inclusion. Mm. Right? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's cause it's hard work, yeah. right? It is. It um, is. I, there's a yeah. local, there's a local race director that t- started to charge people if they wanted to pick up their packet race morning. Right. And oh, wow. um, I thought it was really interesting like I hmm. partly understand why they did it. Um, but I also find that there is a policy that is discriminatory, right? Because you have people who are perhaps working all day the day, right. in, the, in the days prior to the race and the um, packet pickup is not at a location that's easy for you to get to. Um, yes. You have evening commitments, you can't get there. And so now you're financially penalized the next day to pick up your packet at the race because mm-hmm. of these other pieces. And so I think that disproportionately hurts women. I don't mm-hmm. have any numbers on that, but that would be my guess. Um, uh, yeah. You know, and so there perhaps, so as that policy was constructed, like who was involved in thinking mm-hmm. about it? You know, right. was it, were it, was it people that work nine to five jobs, right? Mm-hmm. That live an hour away from packet pickup? Probably not. Right, right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've been one of those people that 
ended up having to pay those fees because I did work all day the day before a race and I did come in the morning of the race, you know, and so, yeah, I, I've definitely experienced that directly. And so, but it, it begs the question of, you're right, who is around the table making those decisions and are they considering everyone? Um, or is there someone at the table that's rationalizing away why, this amount of money is more valuable than including individuals um, in the race. So, you know, for every, what, 25 bucks <laughs> that someone pays to pick up their packet the day of, there might be five to 10 women um, or others who choose not to come because they had other obligations the day before. I'm thinking about single parents and, you know, so forth where, no, I can't pay for a sitter overnight to come to your race the day before. So I have to pick and choose which one I'm going to do. So, you know, there, and some of these, again, I, I would imagine, and I'm extending a lot of grace on this, that some of these decisions are literally made with the blind spots um, that are not intentional. They're unintentional, but that's the whole point of systemic racism, right? Is that um, once we've gotten to a certain point, we've almost forgotten I, I would say some people, especially privileged folks, whether it's white folks or men or whoever we can pick on. Um, but we've gotten so far from the original reasons why certain things were instituted that you going back to our nice white triathletes, we have not very nice folks who are still benefiting from certain systemic policies or infringing upon the rights of other people. And they have no clue what history it was built upon in the first place. They're just still functioning within the system. Mm hmm. Yeah. It makes me think of a meritocracy, right? I think that oh, yeah. sport, yeah. I think sport positions itself um, as a meritocracy, right? We talk about fair play, treating everyone the same, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. equal access. Uh, it's a human right, which I don't disagree with. Um, but mm -hmm. if we position triathlon, endurance sport, sport broadly as this meritocracy, then we're assuming everyone's starting from the same place on the playing field, right? That they're, they all yes, have yes, the yes. same opportunity. So if you build your system mm -hmm. based on this fundamental belief that I think is so embedded in sport that it's a meritocracy, then yeah. you are immediately disadvantaging people. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It, it's a meritocracy. I still think it's a, a caste system in many ways because I've even caught myself saying, and, and I've heard other athletes say it as well, is that, well, you know, you know what you're signing up for. Triathlon is expensive, you know, and so, and, and, in the, and yes, it is relatively, <laughs> you know, most of us ride, ride bikes that are probably, you know, someone's entire home in another country. Right. Um, but what I am saying is that we've used that flippant response to kind of talk away or talk around all the systems that have been created to keep people in and keep other people out. And so it's been a great scapegoat of, oh, well, you know, triathlon is expensive. That's just how it is. You know, oh, triathlon shoes are, you know, they're a hundred bucks. We know what we signed up for, that type of thing. Instead of saying, yes, triathlon is relatively expensive. However, then I think it's the however part. What do we say after the however? What are we going to do to make sure that other people feel included? And mm. so, you know, for, and, and I think about it often, you know, what's going to be after the however? Yes, it's expensive compared to, you know, the rest of the world. I, I remember before I started triathlon, I was primarily a runner. And so, you know, when you find a triathlon that's less than 
150 bucks, you're like, yay, because you're used to the, the runner's uh, registration prices of, you know, maybe $100 for a half a half marathon or something like that. So, you know, even then we're like, oh, I wish I was back in those days where I was just a pure runner because it was much less expensive than it is now, but everything is expensive. Um, and, and that's been the excuse of purposefully boxing people out. And I don't think that's okay. And I've, I've checked myself on it regularly. Shauna, don't say that. Yes, we know it's expensive. And what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I think systems are kind of elastic, right? Like I think that they, mm -hmm. um, when the, the power in that system, whatever that might be, is challenged, um, it bends like because of the elasticity, right? But then it snaps yeah. back um, mm -hmm. sometimes to an even worse place than it began. And I think that we could certainly see that in the US political system over time, right? That kind mm -hmm. of that backwards and forwards, um, I mean, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of principle. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is this rationalization and you've touched on it twice, right? You've touched on it with the triathlon is just so expensive. Um, we know what we're signing up for. And then um, another point that you made related to how we rationalize things. And so I think systems like self-correct when they're under threat. And that's not to mm -hmm. say that this, there's a system that's like this headless um blob right that you know that, right. that, that human beings have no control over i'm not saying that because obviously systems are supported and upheld by humans um right and right. i think that part of how it sustains itself um is through those rationalizations right so mm -hmm. triathlon mm -hmm. is equal for men and women because they pr have equal prize money you know what you're getting into and how expensive triathlon is right you can do this, you can do, you know, so there's these rationalizations that happen that just maintain that systemic um, problem mm -hmm. because um, as though it's, as though it's natural, right? So there's yeah. nothing that can be done about it. That's right. That's right. There, there's no way to correct it. Um, there's, we are all making the excuse that let's sit back and see if the system self-corrects. And we've been through enough generations to see that it's not going to. Mm -hmm. So now what are we going to do? <laughs> and so I, I think that's the conundrum is we, we all would love it if the system would self-correct, but it's clear that it, it hasn't and it won't. Um, and so given that, you know, it, it goes back to when are we going to interrupt the rationalizations, right? Mm -hmm. When are we going to interrupt the, why are y'all buying pink swim caps and blue swim caps, <laughs> you know, it's, you right. know when, when are we, when are we going to stop doing that? Um, when are we going to stop putting the, um, the physically disabled or the, the PA groups, when are we going to stop putting them at the front and put them where they choose to be so that the other athletes don't pummel over them after a race? You know, th there's lots of things to think about. When are we going to interrupt the it's always been that way mm. mode because it's always been that way or not questioning or why don't we have more space in transition you know all these little things and and these are the we, we always talk about microaggressions right like how people are um dying a death by a thousand cuts you know there's yeah. little paper cuts that continue to add up until someone gets to a breaking point there's also contrary conversation to that which would be micro allyship meaning what are the small mm. minutiae what are the small ways that we ask questions about things that we interrupt things while we when we ask questions about things you know what great example when we show up to a race for example and they've already asked us you know a, as a woman what size shirt would you like now it's probably already on the registration form right which one do you want small medium large etc 
Some of the forms say unisex. Some of them say men's or women's cut, for example. Mm -hmm. But what happens when I show up and it didn't say men's or women's cut, I ask for a large and they give me a men's large, not a woman's large. Am I going to be a micro ally to uh, the women's community and say, hey, just wanted to check and see if you had any women's cut shirts. No, we don't have any women's cut shirts. Okay, thank you. I'll make sure to include that on the post-race assessment Mm -hmm. to make sure that you remember to pay attention to this moving forward. Now, I don't have to be an asshole about it. I don't have to make a scene about it, but that is micro allyship that builds up because if you have 2,000 athletes and 100 of them ask questions about women's cut shirts, I guarantee you the race director is going to do something about it. So how can we continue to interrupt and what do those interruptions look like over time? I think we do need to kind of consider that. And so that feeds back into your point of how how does the system, how does this elasticity work? And how do we get to a place where we've done enough micro allyship that we've now decided we're going to break out of this elasticity and go into a new direction? I, I think we need to kind of think through that a little bit longer. Yeah, because if we're at a place with endurance sports where um, folks need to build back in a, in a different and new way, we have to be um, uh, steadfast in our desire to build back in a new way and not let it snap back to how it was, right? I've heard mm-hmm. tons of people say that um, when, the, you know, when the vaccine's out and, and COVID is managed and we're, we're going to back quote unquote normal, actually- right. I don't want to go back to normal because I don't think that normal was that good, right? Like, and how we think about normal. So I've heard that from several people. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the elasticity will will snap us back to normal and perhaps, uh, you know, a worse place, depending on how you define what normal is, right? And so how can we collectively stand our ground and say, no, that system was broken. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to build it back better. I'm like saying build back better, better. And I'm like, oh gosh, I'm like, Right. <laughs> and I'm like, that was not intentional. That was not intentional. Uh, the alliteration was there. You couldn't help it. Was, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I got you. <laughs> you know, uh, the interruption piece, you just made me have, I had a memory when you were talking about interruption, right? Mm, so, um, okay. you know, the modified push-up where you're on your knees yes. um, has, is also referred to as the girl's push-up or yes. has historically been referred to as a girl's push-up. Mm-hmm. I was at a friend's mm-hmm. house years ago now, and I forget, the, I forget how it came up, but I think she had said something about doing, doing a girl's push-up. And um, this other individual who was there was like, asked, kind of like furrowed their brow and kind of was like, what's a girl's push-up? And mm-hmm. um, I like started to respond with, oh, it's the one where you're on your knees, right? And then it kind of became clear that the question was like a purposeful question to yes. out the stupidity of calling a modified push-up a girl's push-up. Because what, what are we baking mm-hmm. in there in that statement is that girls aren't as strong as men. And so they need a specific quote unquote easier push-up, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was a fantastic interruption. She happened to be, um, she was an educator, um, mm-hmm. A young, uh, yeah. like for young people. So yes, she, yes. so she then talked about how she interrupts when kind of um, problematic or damaging stereotypes are raised by the youth that she's with. She will ask questions, and she wow. won't ask them meanly, right? She'll just kind of pose them, and so then the youth are able to come to their own conclusion when asked to explain what a girl's push-up is, how ridiculous that is, right? And how 
demeaning it is. And it kind of makes, you know, like your question about the t-shirt, it's not an aggressive question. It's just, you're asking this question and then you're going to do something with the information that you receive. Absolutely. Well, you know, you're reminding me of, um, I was reading this book. I was looking on my bookshelf while you were talking because you reminded me um, there is a book and as some people know, um, University of Michigan has a program called the Interrelations Program. And basically it's called Dialogue for shorthand, but basically it's a way to keep people engaged. So it kind of works against this whole call out culture. It's more of a call in culture to call people into dialogue and conversation about difficult topics. And anyway, my nerd moment um, is that there's an entire book written on that very point, Lisa, of, you know, how do you even interrupt thought patterns by inserting the right questions. And I think that could be micro allyship in and of itself is that, you know, I don't need to prepare my, you know, three point sermon on why systemic racism sucks and why we should do something about it. Sometimes one poignant question can change someone's entire point of view if it's positioned properly. And I think too, in the delivery of it as well, you know, I, I, I'm still going back to one of my thoughts around the psychology of working against systemic racism is that I, I think some of it is delivery. And I'm not saying that everything has to be sugarcoated because I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to tone police myself or others by saying that, you know, serve it on a platter and they'll get it better. I'm not saying that. Um, but I am saying that very pointed, well-timed questions can literally change someone's entire thought pattern without accusing anyone of anything and also without creating this defensiveness that I think sometimes just literally shuts down people, people's neurons. It just shuts their brains down where, no, I don't want to talk about systemic racism or systemic sexism, but I do want to talk about my uh, athletes getting the size shirt and the style shirt that they want. <laughs> they, they're okay talking about that. They're not okay talking about feminism. <laughs> um, but, you know, if we ask the right question at the right time, the wheels start turning and, mm -hmm. and it could change a lot. And so, once you get that response question, oh, well, what do you mean? Or say more, what could we do differently? Now you've engaged someone in dialogue that doesn't even realize they're talking about anti-isms of any right. sort. Right. And so that's the dismantling, right? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of piece by piece breaking this down rather than throwing a match on it. It actually makes yeah. me think, you know, I'd, I think we'd love to hear from listeners if you've ever had a moment where you've asked one of those probing questions and it's landed really well, right? And it's Ooh, created- an awareness mm -hmm. in the person that you're talking to would be great to have some examples from folks um, who've done that, that we can then share on the podcast to give people ways uh, to think about this. Cause I do think that's such an important point mm -hmm. um, because yeah. the, yeah, the, the, the going in, like we talked about before, right. The going into your boss's office and being like, <laughs> you're a racist, right? Like right. that's a, that's kind of a burning it all down and probably not that helpful. So no, but the, the asking it, of, and it's still true. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that we don't need to use that approach at all times. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So you need to have like a number of tools in your toolkit. Mm. And one of yeah. those tools is asking a question um, that can help the person that you're asking kind of go, huh, I mm -hmm. hadn't really thought about that. You know, mm. like yeah. um, I hadn't really thought about that t-shirt sizes matter but yeah, it does. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that swim cap colors um, might be yeah. problematic. Yeah. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so that I never thought about is actually it. Every time I hear that, it's like a door swinging open to your brain. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, fantastic. We've unlocked this door. Now we can walk in and have a, a further discussion about what needs to happen. And so then we can start getting into some action items, you know, so what should we do about this instead of right. either feeling guilt about not having shirts that fit or, <laughs> or, you know, we, we don't, um, we don't circle the airport for too long. We, we actually get to where we're going, um, which I think is helpful too. And it becomes a productive conversation for everybody involved, which I think is part of that whole dismantling piece um, mm -hmm. that does take time. So, you know, imagine if, I don't know, maybe this will be my, my personal challenge. Lisa, you can join me on this. You know, my personal challenge every day. And I, I think I do it already, but I need to pay attention. It can be our personal challenge to say, I'm going to try to ask one of those questions, one of those micro ally questions, mm -hmm. at least one a day until our next podcast and see what happens, you know, <laughs> yeah. because, I, because I do think it's important to, you know, it's a great exercise for both people, right? Because as someone who's attempting to demonstrate ally characteristics, you're looking for opportunities to ask a poignant question, but then you're also able to observe how people respond to your questions and you can continue to tweak them and hone them because mm -hmm. even asking the right question is an art form. You know, it's, it's not easy. You know, why did you do that? That, that may not be the right question, <laughs> right. But, but tell me more about your t-shirt vendor that is a little different. You can still get to the same end result, but the nuance is a little bit different, which I think mm -hmm. that that would be a great mental challenge for me to take on. So Lisa, you, you and I can, can think about that. We'll be texting back and forth about that, I'm sure this week. Um, yes. But I think it's a good challenge because that, that then gets to the preciseness of the dismantling versus the demolishing, you know, bursting into your supervisor's office saying you're a racist. It, it's a, it's a different tool to get to the same ends, I think. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm extending that challenge to people who are listening, right? So we want to hear yeah. from you about times that you've asked poignant questions where you felt like that's opened the door into the brain, as Shauna says. And we also want to challenge you to see if you can take the next seven days between podcasts and ask one of those probing questions each day and see if you can tweak it over that time frame. Um, mm -hmm. to kind of get better at it. Right. And yeah, um, that can be in the endurance sports world or in your professional world or your family world, whatever makes the most sense for you based on the time that you have. But we would love mm -hmm. to see where that takes you. Um, yeah. And the, the practice of micro allyship. Yeah. Well, you know, I won't say practice makes perfect, but practice definitely makes better. And so I'm always trying to do that. Um, so yeah, let's, definitely email us and let us know what happens <laughs> when you uh, kind of interject yourself into these situations. I think it's a great challenge, Lisa. All right. Great. Well, this has been an outstanding conversation again, Shona. I love chatting with you about this stuff and I feel like we have some action items this time. Oh, we got stuff to do. We got stuff to do, but you know, I'm excited to see how everyone else responds to it. And, you know, once again, I'm so happy that folks get to kind of peek into conversations that Lisa and I would have anyway. So this is like the fun portion of our week when we get to record. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited to hear about everyone's uh, micro allyship and what questions they're posing. I'm going to be taking notes to see what works for y'all. It might work for me too. All right. Great. Thanks everyone. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks 
or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.